Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Confident in telling you that we are tagged out, because I just smoked that deer. Nice shot. It's been really tough hunting, to be honest with you. You're listening to the Scree Country Podcast. Steve Chappell with Elk Camp TV joins us on this episode. Steve, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing great, Locke. Uh, good to be with you guys this morning. Elk season just got over with, so I'm shifting gears and getting ready for the applications for 2023, and I'm excited to talk to you guys today. Yeah. Well, um, Mike Nielsen's back on with me for this episode. Mike, been a, been a couple episodes. How you been? Pretty darn good, man. Just Just like Steve said, I think... Here in the West, pretty much most of the hunts are winding down. I mean, there's there's still a few going on. I've got some buddies out hunting on the eastern plains of Colorado for mule deer, but um, you know, I know you, I know you guys in the South are just kind of getting fired up in whitetail. So yeah, well, I actually here in the here in the West, we're pretty much all but done. Yeah, I actually just saw my first real rut activity uh, yesterday. I saw three different bucks chasing does. My target buck that I've been after for the third time this week, I saw him chasing a doe. Then I saw another shooter buck I've never seen before, which is exciting, and then a small buck. So, yeah, we're really, you know, this Thanksgiving to New Year's and even beyond New Year's to the middle of January and lots of the south is kind of our, um, it's our hay. That's where we make our hay, you know. That's the best hunting. And it coincides with the holidays, which is awesome. That's why deer camp lifestyle is, is so big in the south because we have Thanksgiving and, and oftentimes even Christmas at deer camp, you know, with family and all. So that that's a cool cultural difference. But the other cool thing about it is, and like I experienced this year for the very first time, is uh, I can come out and go elk hunting in September or mule deer hunting in August, September, or any of the western hunts in early fall, and it really it doesn't interfere with any of my local hunting because you guys are on a whole nother schedule so i guess the same applies to you guys if you wanted to come out this way and whitetail hunt when you're done which i know some guys do so that's really cool um 
I wanted to I wanted to really start the conversation off, Steve, by um, letting you give us a, a a real background of of where you know Elk Camp TV is is your thing, and I think I think uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You're in season five, or just finished season five. Yes, yes and, we're just wrapping up season five, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and and you've been um, associated with us here at Scree, so. I'm going to kind of turn the mic over to you and let you tell us a little bit about your backstory um, and and your outfitting Elk Camp TV and everything that kind of brought you here and and you know what what brought you to 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 here where we are today. And, and yeah, Steve, absolutely. Steve, just to be more specific, maybe start us out with your younger years. I mean, where did you get the? When did you catch the bug for elk? And and maybe tell us, like Locke said, how that kind of progressed into. Um, Elk Camp TV, and and obviously you've done you're an outfitter as well. So walk us through walk us through that uh, your younger years. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. You know, I was real fortunate and blessed to grow up in a hunting family, and I actually grew up in rural Colorado. And so, I mean, from a very young age, probably five years old, my dad was taking me along on his mule deer hunts, and so it gave me the bug to be a hunter right away. Um, you know, I. I always say you're raised as a hunter when you get a BB gun when you're seven or eight years old, pellets for it when you're nine, you get a shotgun when you're 12 or 13, and then you get your first big game rifle the first year you're able to hunt. So that was kind of my background. My dad and my granddad would actually take me up into the high mountains of Southern Colorado. You know, we would pack in and hunt elk every fall. Um, So yeah, I was always raised as a hunter, real appreciative of that. I really got the bug for elk calling in the early 90s, you know, when guys like uh, Wayne Carlton and Will Primos were really on the scene with elk calling. I remember the very first elk that I called in and shot with a bow was like 1995, and I was hooked from there. I mean, it just changed my life. Um, you know, I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do was call elk, and I, I, I'm a self-admitted one-trick pony. I really love elk. That's kind of where it starts and ends for me. Um, I really got into the video side of things um, probably about the same time, about the mid-90s. I can still remember buying um, what I considered to be my first real good camera, and that was a Canon XL1. I don't know if any of your listeners out there remember that camera, but it was a real cool-looking camera. Um, And then things just progressed from there. I started out making VHS videos. We had one come out in uh, 1999 or 2000 called Bugling Frenzy. And then right after that, I went into that Extreme Bull series. And, um, you know, as you guys know, everything kind of went digital here in the last few years. So I had to make the decision. I knew DVDs were dead. I had to make the decision whether or not I was going to stay into this. And I really love the video aspect of it. You know, for me, it's not just about calling an elk in and killing it, but it's about, you know, the whole entire experience and video was part of that. And, you know, thus Elk Camp came around. It was a really long road to get here, um, but I'm real thankful. I'm real thankful to be working with you guys. The Scree is pretty cool. I was at the Western Hunting Expo in 2019 and just happened to see you guys booth there. Didn't even know about you, but I was so impressed with the booth and your camo that I walked up and started visiting with you guys. And that's how this kind of all came about. I want to give you, uh, Steve, uh, I like a little brief aside um, that just caught my uh, struck me. So, I grew up in Mississippi, and I grew up in a little small town. And my neighbor, three or four doors down, was Ronnie Cus Strickland, who's now the yeah. CEO of Mossy Oak. 
at that time, he was the manager of the local sporting goods store, and he was good buddies with Will Primos. And Will Primos was touring all around Mississippi, peddling fish bowls full of diaphragm turkey calls and, and all that. Long story short is, you know, growing up in Mississippi, we barely had time for, for church and sports, and we never ventured. We put, you know, we, we, we hunted there. We hunted deer and turkey and duck and small game. And the idea of, of elk hunting in the mountains was so far off. And the, I remember as a kid, my first exposure to it was Will Primos. And you just mentioned his name. I followed Will Primos because he was kind of a hometown hero guy, you know, for all of us boys that loved hunting. There, This guy who we saw at all our local sporting events and who was working with the guy at our local sporting goods store, and here he is with his own movie, you know. And then fast forward a couple of years, and, and he started really getting into the elk hunting with their their line of calls and so I you just mentioned his name and I thought that that was really cool that he was you know someone you mentioned early in 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 that uh that kind of backstory because for me up until I mean I'm 41 years old and I went on my first elk hunt in September and going all the way back to whenever Primos first started doing elk hunting in their truth series um that was always my first introduction to elk hunting so that's just a really cool tie in there yeah I really feel like those guys set the bar for videoing elk hunts. And Will, I got to be honest, Will Primos was really the guy that inspired me and gave me a chance at this, uh, doing what I do now. Um, I mean, when I was really young, I remember sending him a VHS tape of some of my hunts and some of my call-ins and such. And that very fall, he invited me to come up and meet with him in Douglas Pass, Colorado. And I was with those guys for about a decade, went on some hunts with him was on a couple of the truth videos with will and, and them. And yeah, he's the one that really set my path and really inspired me to do what I'm doing today. So I still have a real appreciation and love for that guy. Yeah. I just thought it was a really cool tie in that, that, that was, um, you know, I obviously am, am not involved in the elk hunting, uh, outside of working with scree and that being, um, you know, a big part of our clientele. Um, but, you know, for me, my the as I remember growing up, the first time I ever was able to watch elk hunting and see what it was really about and start to make those, you know, those big dreams for some, one day going out west and doing it was watching them because I watched them turkey hunt and, and deer hunt and, and, and stuff. So just a, just a really cool time. Well, unless, unless you grew, unless you grew up in the west, right, like Steve and grew up hunting elk, I mean... I think Will Primos really popularized elk hunting. I mean, there's, it, it's amazing how many, in fact, Locke, it's kind of interesting. I don't know what it is about Louisiana guys, but they love to elk hunt. They love to kill everything, swear, Mike. Yeah. I, they I, love I to kill I've everything. Met, <laughs> I, I've met more, I've met more guys like in the, in the like middle of the wilderness in Colorado that, you know, just love their, from where are you from, Louisiana, man? So it's kind of, kind of interesting. But yeah, as a as a Southern boy, I think uh, Will Will Primos definitely. Um, I mean, I have memories, fond memories of watching uh, elk videos, you know, that were produced by Will Primos. And yeah. well, you know, the uh, not to rabbit hole this podcast conversation into Will Primos, but from my perspective, he had a lot of the same effect on turkey hunting because he was one of the first guys that really showcased spring turkey hunting on television and DVD and VHS and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then maybe not so much whitetail deer hunting because it's such a big thing, but to showcase it 
in the way that they did on television and on their their uh, yearly series VHS and then DVD. Um, they were one of the pioneers of that, but I feel like they had a similar effect on spring turkey hunting as a uh, as as a sport and as a culture within within the hunting cultures as as you're saying that they did with elk. So very much a pioneer, without a doubt. <laughs> well, Steve, um, well let's let's jump right let's just jump right into the um, into elk hunting. I remember when I was a kid, I was with my brothers. We were actually scouting for deer. <clears throat> And uh, I wouldn't say it's not the first elk I'd ever seen, but it was the first just absolutely giant bull that I'd ever seen. And I've never, I've never forgot that. I mean, I, it's, it's something that, that was, you know, kind of helped me catch the elk bug. Um, but what was there, was there, was there a specific moment in time where you really just, you realized, man, I, I'm all in on this elk thing. Cause, cause frankly, I'm, I'm actually more of a mule deer guy, but, <clears throat> but I've really, caught the elk bug and I've been on some, some pretty good elk hunts and, um, with family. And we've, we've, uh, been fortunate to take a few tremendous bulls, not nearly as many as you have, but, but anyway, was there a specific event that, that you knew, man, you were, you were all in on elk hunting? Yeah, it's crazy that you asked me that. Cause in my head, I'm just going, yes, definitely. Um, it was 1995 and it was the very first time that I applied my dad in Arizona and I applied him for the unit 23 early rifle hunt. It actually, at that time, it wasn't divided up between North and South. It was just unit 23. And lo and behold, the very first time he's in the draw, he draws that tag as a non-resident. And I remember finding out the draw results and telling him, and he was just kind of, just kind of lukewarm about it. He thought because he drew it the first time that it probably wasn't a great hunt. And I said, dad, you don't understand You just hit the lottery. And so that fall, we went out. I think we the hunt started on Friday. Um, we went out on, uh, on Wednesday and got there in the dark on Wednesday, and it was pouring rain, poured rain all night long. And um, we weren't even able to step out of the trailer until about 9 o'clock because of the rain. And when we stepped out, there were mature bulls bugling all around. And my dad just looked at me like, you got to be kidding me. And I said, yes, this is going to be phenomenal. And, and I'm telling you, it was that hunt right there. I said to myself, literally, I have got to do this for the rest of my life. If it kills me, no matter what I have to do, what life changes I need to do, I'm going to be in the elk woods every year with these big elk and, and doing this. And that's what really gave me the bug. I was guiding with my dad at the time in Southern Colorado, but that really gave me the bug to establish something in Arizona um, which I did right about 2000. Um, but that, that hunt with my dad that year he killed about a 350 bull on the first afternoon of, of, of the hunt. Um, you know, a great bull for him at the time. Cause you know, we were used to these smaller Colorado bulls, but that really, really shaped my future and uh, really gave me a huge urge and bug to do this. Well, and, and a 350 bull is a tremendous bull, you know, yeah. I, growing up here in Utah, man, in the, um, the late nineties, early two thousands. I mean, the, the, the trophy elk hunting in Utah was literally off the charts. I mean, they were, they were killing multiple 400 inch bulls. And, you know, I remember talking to a buddy that drew a, drew a tag, uh, a pretty good tag, limited entry tag here in Utah. And, you know, I'm like, well, what kind of bull are you holding out for? And it's like 400 or nothing. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? I mean, it was just, it was a, it was a crazy time. Um, <clears throat> 
consequently, you know, they wanted more opportunity, which I totally get. And so they increased tags and, you know, you just don't, you don't see, I mean, they still kill some tremendous bulls. Don't get me wrong. And there's, I think there's 400 inch bulls killed every year, but man, I think we forget how good of a bull, you know, a, a, a 350 type bull is. I mean, that's a, that's a mature yes. you know, bull. That's, that's nothing to, to balk about, but elk hunting's kind of taken, at least here in Utah, um, would would you say would would you say it's followed a similar cadence in other you know other states as as far as it seemed like trophy quality has kind of de- declined in recent in the recent decade? I would say so, Mike. Definitely. Um, you know, there's the great bull here and there, but you're right. A 350 bull is such a solid bull. I mean, to me, that kind of bull has real no real visible weaknesses, and to be honest, I really would be hard pressed to want to hunt with someone that would scoff at a 350 bull. I really do feel like you say in the last decade or so that the overall trophy quality in a lot of the Arizona units has declined a little bit. Um, I also feel like um, the consistent, good, hard rutting activity isn't as common as it used to be. You know, it used to be real common to go out on a morning hunt and have them bugled, you know, till eight 30 or so in the morning in Arizona. And that just doesn't seem to be the case anymore, at least for me anyway. And then in the afternoons, um, I remember back in the day, you know, a decade, 15 years ago, you could go out and have bulls bugling by four 30 and be, you know, chasing bugles and calling at them. Um, but now you're kind of lucky sometimes to get a bugle before darkness. So it has become a little more challenging. You have to work a little harder for the encounters, for sure. Yeah, are, would you say that hunters are, are essentially maybe overcalling? Are we are, are we as hunters making those up smarter? What what would you say? I mean, or have they just kind of evolved, or what? What do you think? Yeah, uh, man, I don't know. I I, I don't want to give them too much credit. You know, I don't want to ascribe you know human reasoning to them, but I really do think that they. They, they can learn and they, they can adapt. And I, I believe that, yeah, calling gets more and more popular and uh, gets more popular for people to, you know, bring along friends and buddies, which I get. I mean, that's part of hunting, having a, your friends and family out there. But these elk do get called out a lot more. I, I'm probably somewhat to blame for that, for, you know, showing it on video a lot. And um, but, yeah, I think it's become a little more difficult and you have to be definitely on your A game to, to get results these days. Well, let, let's talk about calling. I, I listened to a previous podcast that you did. Um, it, it's been it's been a little, a little while, but I think it was sometime earlier this year. <clears throat> and um, you're you're considered to be in in the uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll boast for you a little bit here, Steve. But you're you're considered to be a, one of the leading experts on on calling. Um, so talk to us about that. I know we've, we've got a lot of listeners that are, that are new to the game of elk hunting, some that, that are planning their first trip out West to hunt elk. Talk to us a little bit about, about calling when, you know, when, when you should call, when you shouldn't, um, things that, that you've, you know, that you've learned over decades of, of pursuing these magnificent animals. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. I would say the biggest things for me about calling is, first off, a lot of people would be surprised at how close I get to elk before I engage and start trying to call one in. I really hunt more with my feet than I do with my calls. And I like to say that I like to be aggressively stealthy. So I want to get in there 
right away inside of 150 yards before I want to have a conversation with that elk. And then to me, when you get inside of that zone, it, it can be real stressful to you as a caller because when you get in tight like that, if you blow up, if your first call to that elk is a real loud, harsh sound, it's going to set them off and it's going to, you know, more so probably spook them than it is attract them. So that that's where the calling part comes in. And the off season is when I really try to learn to blow my calls with control. Um, sure. I like to be able to call loudly when I need to, but I also like to be able to really control the volume and the tone and be able to call really soft and just sweet and sexy to them when I'm in there tight. Um, you know, I'm always really um, thoughtful and conscious of the wind. The wind is everything in elk hunting, just like it is with other animals. Um, but I really try to get the wind totally to my advantage because if the elk can get the wind on you, if a bull can get the wind on you, he will take it every time. Like if I have the wind somewhat right on a setup, but let's say it's blowing, you know, off at a 45 degree angle in his general direction, but it's not blowing right to him. He's going to go get that wind every time before he comes to the call. So I'll really do a lot of hunting and positioning with my feet before I set up and try to call. So I, I really tell guys to, you know, you want to be aggressive, but you also want to be thoughtful and patient as well before you blow a call. Because once you blow that call, you know, you've, you've let those elk know you're there. You've let that bull know you're there. And then everything changes at that point. Gotcha. What, what about... What about bugles, man? I've heard a lot of guys. I mean, do you do you do you often use ever use a bugle when you're in that that close? Mike, I'm kind of um, this way. When I when I call the herd bulls, I bugle at them aggressively, and when I call the satellite bulls, I cow call to them. That's pretty much my cut and dried approach right there. Um, a lot of people, and I used to be of this opinion that if you bugle at a herd bull, he's going to round up his cows and leave. <clears throat> and yes, he can do that because it's all about distance and 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 you putting him in that flight, fight or flight mode. And to me, the way I get herd bulls to react and come into a call is first off, like I was just talking about, I get super close to him. I like to be, if I can be, if I can get away with being 75 yards away from him and his cows and be right in amongst that herd. And I blow um, what a lot of guys have heard as a lip ball bugle or a display bugle. Uh, Some people call it a bull calling cows bugle. Um, And I always say when I blow that bugle, I don't want to be asking a question with it. I want to be making a statement. In other words, I want to flirt with that bull's cows when I blow it and punch him right in the nose at the same time with that call. And I feel like when I put that kind of um, emotion into it and portray that into the call. That's when the bull just, there's no question. He just bristles up and comes right over and he's looking to, to kick my rear and get me away from his cows. You know, so when you uh, say, I, go ahead. No, Lee. I was just, I was going to interject something that that's really interesting in that because, uh, on the elk hunt that I went on this year, uh, I, I had a guide. I, I, <laughs> I wasn't going to kill an elk without a guide for sure they're hard to kill with a guide i wasn't going to kill one without one but uh he said a lot of those same things and and we hunted that way a lot and i find that a real interesting parallel as a very um i guess seasoned long time turkey hunter uh you find a lot of that same thing uh with not necessarily a young two-year-old tom that just will come to anything but an older tom that's played that game 
you know, that's fought with other birds and eluded hunters that are calling to him for several springs. Um, there's some interesting parallels there. That's uh, for people that are listening that, you know, like, like Mike said, for new hunters that are maybe familiar with that that uh, calling strategy that goes into turkey hunting and, and trying to parallel that to something. Uh, it's very interesting. A lot of times you get in tight on a on a uh, on an older turkey, a smarter one. A lot of those same uh, strategies I found work very well in that scenario too. Absolutely. So when yeah, you're, when you're calling a mature bull like that, Steve, are you when you when you say you you punch him in the nose? Are you are you doing that with a big mature bugle or is it more of a kind of a satellite you know uh kind of a kind of a weaker bugle or yeah Mike great question you know for the last four years or so I have changed my mindset and I bugle at him as as aggressively and big as I can because one thing I've found especially with these Arizona bulls I don't want to just throw it all into one lump because I know in some states you may not be hunting big mature bulls like in Arizona and Utah and places like that. But when I'm hunting these big mature older herd bulls in Arizona, I want to portray that I'm definitely an an imminent threat to him and his cows that I could take his cows right from him. So I'm trying to be as big and as as aggressive as I can so that he takes it serious and, and knows that I'm a threat. And I'll be honest, when I try to be as big and aggressive as I can, there's no way you can overpower a bull out there in the woods. They are so three-dimensional and heavy. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, even when I try to bugle as aggressive as I can. But I definitely, that's what I want to put out there when I blow that call at him. I want him to know that that I mean, I mean business. <laughs> well, well, talk to me about, you know, like, for example, hunting. I know you, you do a lot of hunting in, in Arizona. Um, and these these units are, you know, they're they're a little better managed, obviously, than than uh in in colorado i mean you have definitely better opportunities more opportunities i mean you can you can go buy an elk tag every year in colorado and go hunting which is awesome but you can't do that in arizona you can't do that in utah you can't do that in nevada and i I know parts of parts of new mexico actually probably most of new mexico you can't do that so what what is it what is it like would you say there's pretty significant differences hunting elk that are not as highly and heavily pressured like in Arizona as compared to like hunting elk in, in, um, in Colorado. Yeah, I think it makes a big difference. I mean, for me, like I just stated, if I was hunting in Southern Colorado up in the mountains, like I used to before I really got locked into, you know, hunting in Arizona and guiding down there so much, I would probably be more like I used to be when I hunted in Colorado and I'd be more of a cow caller, which I still am to satellite bulls, you know, in Arizona and elsewhere. Um, You know, I would still keep the same approach as far as being, you know, aggressive and stealthy and trying to get in close because I really feel like a call means a lot more to a, to an elk when it's closer than when it's far away, because they're always um, they're doing something. They're on a routine and they're typically moving into the wind They're either moving to bed or they're moving out of bedding in the evenings to come feed and water. So what you have to realize as a hunter is you're kind of interrupting that schedule. And the more convenient you can be for them to, you know, just divert a little bit out of their schedule and out of their plan path, the more apt you are to call them in than if you set up and are trying to call them in from half to three quarters of a mile away. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, by and large, I don't want since I talked about bugling a minute ago, I don't want guys to think that I'm a big bugler because I would still say 80 to 90 percent of the time I'm going to be a lover versus a fighter. And I really have to be in that unique situation and right position to call to a herd bull. Otherwise, I'm not going to bugle. Right, because that's not going to work. I mean, you're if you're hunting, you know, if you're hunting, you know, two and three year old bulls in in Colorado. I mean, you you let out a big dominant bull. You're yeah. that that you know that young bull's gonna gather up what cows he might have, or he might just get the hell out of there altogether. You know, I mean, yep. uh, so so that's that that is interesting. You know, I've had I've talked to a lot of my buddies that are. <clears throat> that are big into elk hunting. I've got some buddies that are also do a lot of, a lot of guiding and stuff. And they have all said very similar things that they like to really move in and get as close as possible. We actually had a, a great podcast with, with the great Randy Omer here a, a couple months back. And he talked nice. about back. He shared a hunt about his um, with his son and, and how they had, you know, last day it was, I was, I believe it was Arizona. Yeah, it was Arizona. Maybe you've heard that story. And, Anyway, he they, they moved into thirty yards on this this bull and and set up. But yeah, I, I agree. That seems to be a general consensus to get in um, before you start doing your work because it's just hard. I think I think overall it's just hard to bring in a bull. I mean, you you hear the occasional story about guys saying they call the bull in from you know half a mile away, but that's yep. you know I think that's more of an exception. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, I'm glad you had Randy on. I'll have to listen to that. I really admire him. He's one of the very best. He's him. He's killed some giant bulls in Arizona and some giant bucks. And yeah, he's he's a great person too. So yeah, I, I would love to hear that. Well, awesome. So do you, do you have a? I mean, I mean, is there? You kind of have a favorite? You kind of have a favorite state where you like to hunt. Steve, is it is it is it a general consensus that you obviously love Arizona? Yeah, I love Arizona. The great thing for me is is that I get to be in Arizona for that archery season and the early rifle or muzzleloader season. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm in the woods of Arizona for approximately about a month, and then I go to Colorado. I guide with my dad there on our private land there in Southwest Colorado, and we have a pretty unique situation there. Um, you know, obviously we're hunting wild free ranging elk, but these elk are incredibly vocal. And I mean, I've heard them bugling in December. It, it's incredible. But during all those rifle hunts in Colorado, when we're guiding, these elk are very vocal. They're really herded up. And I think that creates, you know, that herd environment where they're, where they're more talkative. But I've noticed even the cows in Colorado on our place are very, very talkative, very different than the Arizona uh, cows, which are kind of mutes. But um, I think what that what that really does for me and taught me, you know, when I was early on in hunting and started guiding with my dad there in the early 90s, is it really gave me the ear for elk tone and elk sounds. Um, that's where I really, um, I feel like, got the bug for calling and developed, developed my calling was just hearing so many elk all the time. I'm, I mean, you can't help but get that tone just in your, in your head. So it's kind of a unique scenario. I get, like I say, I get to be in Arizona for about a month and then up in Colorado for about two months. So it's a, it's, it's a pretty cool thing. And uh, I, I love it and wouldn't change it for the world. I, I'm curious um, coming from the, uh, the, the newbies perspective, 
you know, if you took someone like myself who's who's only experienced an elk hunt in one place, and that's northern Utah in the in the Uintas area, um, for someone uh, like me who maybe has experienced an elk hunt um, in one place, may, be it Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, or somewhere, um, could you break down maybe uh, some of the differences they would expect in hunting some of these other popular elk places that they've not had the chance to experience? Like how, how does the hunting differ? I think a lot of it is just based on the terrain you're hunting, the habitat you're hunting. I know in a lot of places in Utah, um, you know, some places in Arizona um, and, and some places in Colorado, you have the ability to glass. And I know that's very popular. I know a lot of people love to glass and that's like, that's how they like to go about it. Um, you know, it seems like for the most part, from what I see, I only have the experience of hunting the boulder in Utah. I had an archery tag in 2007, but it seems like the country in Utah overall is a little more rugged than in Arizona. And I notice people, um, you know, tend to glass and, and kill elk that way more so than they do with calling. So I think a person needs to adapt to the type of habitat that they're hunting in. Um, you know, me loving to call, I kind of want to pick areas and units in Arizona to be in where I can call, uh, cause that's what I like to do. So I'm going to pick areas that have more, um, thick, flat terrain, if you will, where you can get in tight and cut the distance and, and call the bulls and do it that way. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it can't be stated enough that if you're in terrain where you can glass, um, you know, having good optics and being, you know, glassing off of a tripod has its advantages for sure. Well, and regarding regarding the the ranch that you that you guide on in Colorado, and I don't know how big the ranch is, but um, it it seems to me there's there's an advantage to have you know a, a piece of land like that tied up to where you don't have a bunch of public land hunters in there overcalling and educating the elk, and because I mean, frankly, I I mean you you go out on the public land Colorado, and it's a little bit different. Them elk aren't as vocal. Um, and, I, and I've heard that from a number of people that, you know, ha, have the, the opportunity to, to, to hunt private ranches is, yeah, you just don't have all those, you just don't have all those public land hunters in there just educating the elk. Maybe they're, maybe they're good callers. Maybe they call too much. And my, my guess is there's probably a lot of guys that frankly can't call. And as a result, those are the ones that seem to be educating these, these elk. Yeah, definitely, Mike. Um, you know, the thing about our Colorado place is it is fairly small and we do have neighboring properties and we do have Southern Ute Indian Reservation around us. So, you know, while it's a lot of fun and the elk are very vocal most of the time, we have to be very cautious about not being overly aggressive because if we bump them and push them off of our property. It can be a few days before they come back and then they're subject to the, you know, the neighbors pounding them and, and getting on them and calling at them. I've noticed that um, I'm, I've actually noticed being out there sometimes in early, early September, there's guys with, you know, archery tags that are hunting near us and I hear them calling a lot. So uh, they're definitely getting called at, but uh, so far they've still remained very vocal, which is, which is awesome for us. You know, Locke and I had a, an interesting, interesting conversation recently about, well, we were actually talking about whitetails, but I remember asking Locke, I said, hey, Locke, Locke I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of new to whitetail hunting myself. And I said, Locke, what, if, if you had to pick six or seven days 
to hunt whitetail and that was it you don't get it you're done you know i mean it's that you're allotted that week that seven days what seven days would it be and he you know he he was pretty quick to answer and say well well these are these are the these are the days that i really like and he he actually called out a specific day that he said if, if i could only hunt one day it would be this day i've killed more big bucks and that of course that ties into the rut so let, let me pose the same question to you if you had seven days to hunt elk what, what what do you what seven days would that be what 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 would you consider to be prime prime rut and i know there could be fluctuations there's so many mm-hmm. there's so many things that play into that and i think there's some things that we maybe to- totally don't even understand as far as maybe moon phases and you know the the, the lunar phases and different things but all in all with your, you know, decades of experience, what would you say would be the, the, the best seven days to hunt elk in the West? Yeah, Mike, for me, I would say for sure with my experience in Arizona, I would say September 24th to the end of the month. Um, although the best two rutting days that I've ever, ever experienced in my life in Arizona were um, October 1st on one, one year and October 3rd on another year. But if I had to pick seven days, it would be the 24th through the end of the month. Yep. That's interesting. Cause I, I, you know, I remember years ago, my brothers and I were up, we were actually up scouting for elk. And I, and I think it was, I think it was that week. It would have fallen within that week, but I mean, them elk were, I mean, they were, they were wound up and they were in fact, we watched a couple bulls lock up and get into a, you know, all out fist fight with each other. And it was, it was awesome. But, but yeah, I would, I would definitely concur with that. You know, That's why I'm hoping I draw an archery tag this year in Arizona because the hunt's the 15th of September through the 28th. So it encompasses a lot of that great time, you know, with what I consider to be a little, little bit of pre-rut time still in there where there's the potential to call in a big bull before he's really gotten cowed up. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really hopeful that I draw an archery tag in Arizona. If not, I'll look to get with someone that, that has a great archery tag and have a lot of fun with them. That, you mentioned something there that, that I find interesting and, you know, Mike kind of referenced, um, you know, the whitetail side of things. And that's what I've spent the majority of my life, uh, <clears throat> you know, obsessing over probably the best way to put it. But, you know, you mentioned that pre-rut period with, with bulls and that's an interesting parallel because there's a lot of conversation in the whitetail world about, you know, when you, when you talk about the rut and um, and and hunting tactics surrounding the rut, um, it's kind of common common uh, verbiage for people to talk about peak rut or you know and and, and you kind of glass right over the idea that all of these animals have stages of the rut. That technically peak rut in the whitetail world. Peak rut is not when you want to hunt whitetails because then they're locked down with a doe, and unless you can sneak up on them, you're not going to kill them because they're going to, you know, lock down with her and not move for very far until they've bred her. And sometimes if you're in a place like in the Midwest, that might be in a wide open field where you can't get anywhere near them without them seeing you, right? And so, you know, for me, um, what I want to find myself in, whether it's November in the Midwest or or December in the Mid-South, or January in the Deep South, whatever, wherever I'm at, I want to find myself in that pre-rut phase where 
there's a very short window of time and it really depends on where you're hunting and what the deer density is and the age structure you know with the animals but there's a there in every one of them no matter how good or bad those dynamic pieces are there's a small window of time where the biggest maturest bucks are the most susceptible to the most tactics at one time and i think that's what you're trying to that's what you're hoping you find yourself in the field right in the middle of right because sometimes maybe they're on their feet cruising and that's an advantageous thing but but it doesn't really line up with them being call responsive necessarily uh or vice versa if you can find that peak time where they're really really ready to go but it's pre-rut they're not really they're not you know chasing a doe is fun to watch a buck chase a doe just like i'm sure you know i've not gotten to experience it but watching a herd bull work his cows is it's really cool to see but he's really hard to kill right there right you know unless you can shoot him from a long way off with a rifle or something it's really hard to kill because he's you're you are not the real thing regardless of how good of a hunter and caller you are you're not the real thing he is looking at the real thing right and so when you're hunting a whitetail and he's with a doe, she may not be standing for him. He's just chasing her around. Well, you're completely at the mercy of that doe. If she doesn't bring him by you, you're not going to kill him because you're not going to call him off of her. He's not going to go bed down. He's going to be very visible, but he's still really hard to kill. So, you know, I'm interested in that parallel that you brought up because that's kind of the same thing for whitetail hunters. What you really want to find is those one or two days where he is desperately seeking and he's responding to calls. He's staying on his feet, but he's not actually with a, re- a receptive doe. You are the receptive doe in that case, and you become extremely, extremely dangerous at that point in his world. And, and the same thing can be said, uh, I, you know, maybe you could comment on this. The same thing can be said in the whitetail world about kind of a post-rut phase. Because if you're in a place where you got a lot of does or, a, you know, a good deer buck-to-doe ratio and all that, there's a period post-rut as well where they're desperately seeking those final receptive does. Do you see that in the elk woods? Is there a, a late-season opportunity to kind of strike that same magic that you got in the pre-rut opportunity? Yeah, I, that's a great point. There's a lot of wisdom in what you just said, Locke, and it does apply to elk hunting. You know, I would say even though I prefer that last week of September, just because I feel like if you're a caller, you're, you can have more action. It might be more with satellite bulls because at that time, the herd bulls are going to be more locked down, like you were saying, the whitetails are. So there's a parallel there. Um during that time, that tactic that I was talking earlier about with bugling is where, where you're going to call those herd bulls in during that time. Otherwise, you're not going to. I would say with those big herd bulls, usually somewhere between the 8th to 10th of September to the middle of the month, so around the 15th or so, is where there's the opportunity that maybe they're not cowed up at that point. Yeah, but they're still interested and you can get them to come into a cow call at that, at that point. Maybe sometimes even a bugle because they're very territorial and they might be wondering, you know, what bull you are and and come take a look at you. But then I've also noticed on the other end of things, sometimes when I'm guiding during that, um, that muzzleloader or early rifle hunt and you get into early October, there can be big bulls that aren't with cows at that time, but they're still interested. They're still cruising, looking for cows. And um, at that time versus bugling, I'm able to cow call them in that time of year. I can think specifically about 2019. I had a great encounter with a, with a great big bull in Arizona, called him out into a wide open meadow. And when I saw him, I could not believe that he did not have cows the, the size of this bull, but he came 
came right to the cow call, came out in a wide open meadow. What time of year was that? Would you say that would have been um, probably the last couple of days of September, right there? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, it seems to me too, even with mule deer, you know, I've even seen this with mule deer. Is it seems like these older age class of animals that have been around for a while, they're they're content to let the the satellite bulls or the you know the the less mature bucks kind of just court the does because they know they're not ready and boy once they're ready they 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 move in and they move fast and they dominate but that that is interesting that it would be that late because i i would think that by september 24th you use that as a date i mean would you say most of your mature bulls are locked into a fairly sizable harem or i mean are they locked down pretty good by then I would say for the most part, yes. It is interesting. Sometimes you can have a mature bull. Maybe he's a little older and he just doesn't have the energy and angst that he used to have, you know, maybe when he was five and a half to eight and a half right in there when he's in his prime. And he maybe he's just a little tired by that point in his life. And so, like you said, Mike, um, he's going to let the let a younger, more aggressive bull kind of run the cows and keep them gathered up. But he's going to be nearby, you know, looking to step in at the right time when a cow's in heat. And uh, there's always the opportunity to encounter that kind of bull. And I always tell people the bull running the cows is not always necessarily the biggest antlered bull in the area. Um, there's just a lot, lot to do with a, a bull's demeanor. I found that every, every bull has their own personality, just like people. There's bulls that are fighters. They're more aggressive. Um, you know, they're all broken up. Their antlers get all broken up. And then there's bulls that are just you know, they, they don't want to fight. Um, I, I think by and large, most bulls are that way. They don't want to fight. They're more looking for love and they're looking to avoid those those harsh fights. And, um, you know, I really want to capitalize on that when I'm out there. So um, it, it, it doesn't always start and end with, with uh, the bull controlling the cows. There's a lot of beautiful, big satellite bulls out there uh, that can be had out there as well. Yeah, the one, one interesting thing in as kind of a part of this conversation because I'm, I'm for better or for worse I'm, I'm constantly find myself comparing turkey hunting and elk hunting just because of the calling and um spot and stalk uh parallel and 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 you know the world that I come from but the one place that this is com- that, that 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 this does not parallel at all it's really interesting it, it doesn't happen in the whitetail world either as it pertains to um to, to rutting animals. I don't guess you call a turkey's not in rut, but, you know, essentially the same thing. Um, a really common strategy that, um, that you know, successful turkey hunters and good experienced turkey hunters will learn is you can absolutely kill a mature tom when he's haremed up with, when he's, you know, up with a harem of hens by learning how to call to the hens. And I don't know if that's the difference between deer, elk, and hooved animals, and birds are just different animals, you know, by, by God's design. But, you know, um, I don't know if this is something in elk hunting, and I'm kind of halfway posing the question thinking I know the answer because I, I don't know of any real strategy that has any proven effect to it with any other animal, uh, any other deer-type animal that you can call to a a female uh in 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 a breeding cycle but in turkey hunting if you got a big mature tom out there and he's got 20 hens if you're a good caller and a good turkey hunter all you got to do and i say all you got to do like it's easy it's not easy but all you got to do is 
pardon my French, but piss off the lead hen, and you can kill him because she's going to bring him right to you because she's going to come try to run you off. You know, she's going to come try to check you out and all that kind of thing. And that that's an interesting place in this conversation that I've actually never gone in in an elk conversation where I couldn't parallel them on some level. And that's something that I, I'm, I'm expecting there really isn't. There's no way to manipulate that cow, or am I wrong? Is there a way to do that? There actually is. And I think a call that is very, very underrated and not talked about a lot is a, is a calf call. A calf call is, is, is not intimidating to that lead cow. It's not intimidating to the bull. Um, but elk are very social animals and they're very, cows are very protective also. They have that you know, mothering instinct. I think a lot of times what people do is they make the mistake of blowing, and maybe they don't even know this, but they're blowing just a mature sounding mew at that, at that harem. And what I found in my experience, sometimes those cows will come over to you, that, that lead cow will come over and bring the bull when you're calling like that. But I found just like bugling at the wrong time and at the, at the wrong distance, you can push, you can push that harem of cows away and, and they'll pull the, the bull away by cow calling as well. Um, so that's one thing that, that I seek to perfect and I'm still, you know, working on is, is my calf calling because if you can time that right and blow it, you know, just right, um, th- those cows are going to come over and check that out and bring the bull along. So there is kind of a parallel there with the turkeys and the elk. Interesting. So is it like a calf in distress a little bit? Like, I mean, does it, I mean, what, what, what ultimately, what, what kind of calf call is it? You know, Mike, I think that is a very good sound. Absolutely. Um, this is kind of interesting. Um, I actually found out how protective cows are. One evening I was sitting with a hunter in Arizona. We were watching a tank and it got to be dark and we had elk actually come in right before dark and pinned us down. Normally I like to get out of there and get away from the water source if I can and not get pinned in. But we got pinned in that evening. And so we sat there for 10 or 15 minutes and I was like, guys, we I don't know what to do to get us out of here. And finally I thought, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to howl like a coyote at him. I'm, I'm going to do an aggressive coyote call at him. And uh, it shocked me because when I started doing that, instead of them leaving, there was two or three cows there and they got really aggressive toward that to meet toward me calling like a coyote and started coming to me. Um, so I think there's a lot to that, that if you blow, you know, that calf in distress sound, it's going to pique their interest in getting, get them to come over to you. Um, but I also think that, you know, just blowing, you know, just, just like typical contact calf calls, you know, just, just that typical, Hey, I'm over here type thing is, is a good way to, to get them interested also. Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting thing that you said there about <clears throat> not so much about the calf calling, but, um, you know, the situation you found yourself in. And, and as a, as a whitetail hunter, like one of the biggest things that you want to try to avoid, if you're, if you're a, a, especially a private land hunter and, and you have food plots or common areas with, with set tree stands and you hunt them a lot, you know, or, or frequently, the biggest problem that you will encounter is if a mature doe ever figures out where your stand is, She's going to bust you every time from then on because she knows and she will get before she ever gets into she'll she'll check that spot. So if she ever busts you in that stand, let's just use a food plot as a real common example. 
uh, the you know the tree stands pro- inside of the food plot, and if if a doe is out in that food plot and she ever actually identifies you in that tree stand, she's going to stand at the edge of that plot and check that tree stand out every time she comes from then on. And if you're sitting in it, she's going to stand there until she sees you or smells you or something. And so you want to avoid that at all costs. And I thought that was interesting because I've I've heard of a lot of people trying different things in that situation where you're hunting one of those kind of sets on a deer hunt like that, and you have you have deer in front of you, and you don't want them to see you get out of the tree stand or you know alert them to the fact that hey I'm you know I'm looking at this spot and 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 whatnot. So one of the things you people actually have somebody drive up to the food plot in a truck and scare them off before they ever get out of the stand because you don't want to scare the deer off but i mean vehicles are part of their life right i mean they don't associate somebody driving up and them having to leave the food plot with that tree stand that's there that you might be sitting in the next time you know the next the next day or whatever and uh but to your point i've also heard the same thing somebody use a predator sound or even try to manufacture a um uh, like an alert snort deer blowing and they don't really know where it came from they just know oh we need to get out of here something's going on and it's just a way to get you out of that pin down situation without them blowing your spot up for the rest of the season so that's that's kind of yeah. a cool thing yeah i couldn't agree more lock i'm kind of crazy about that even on public land the extent that i will go to not to blow elk up and especially the cows and like you say same way with elk you got to get around those cows when you're dealing with a herd of elk they're the ones that are going to pick you for sure sometimes i sometimes i say i hate elk i just want to blow them up because they get you pinned down and if i'm with you know a hunter and a cameraman i i, I try to talk to guys before the hunt and say you know, if we get pinned down in a scenario where you got a cow looking at you, you just absolutely can't move because every time you move and catch her interest again, she's going to stare at you for five or 10 minutes again and keep you pinned down because they they don't wear watches. Time means nothing to them. They don't have breakfast to go to. They don't care. They're going to sit there and look until they figure it out or decide nothing's wrong. So I will go to great extents not to spook elk. Um, Kind of the interesting thing, after we finally got out of that spot that evening on the way out, we encountered a rattlesnake on the road walking back mm-hmm. to the truck. So yeah. that whole evening got was pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's interesting to, to point out in all the animals that we hunt, I think it's easy for us to just kind of not consider the fact that this whole hunter-to-prey relationship that we have going on is completely different for us than it is them. This literally life or death for them. Their whole life is that. You know, and I'm referring to your comment about they don't wear a watch. Like, you know, they have nothing else to do. They're not going anywhere. And it's a one sense, you know, I know like with, with all deer and, and elk and, and big game animals, I mean, it's a one sense kind of thing. They sense you in one way and that's it. And they have to be that way. If That's nature's way of protecting them. And um, I think sometimes, like, just in our very small subconscious decision-making processes that we have as hunters, it, it's easy to kind of lose sight of what's going on in their world as they're encountering you versus what's going on in your world as you're encountering them. And yeah. if you can try to keep that in, in mind a little bit with how you act and what decisions you make, um, could really benefit you, make you a better hunter. 
Oh, without a doubt. I mean, imagine having to live your life sneaking up on a drink of water. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be insane? I mean, literally, they have to sneak up on a drink of water. So I always have the mindset that the, the exit strategy of your hunt is as important as your game plan. You have to think it all the way through, um, especially if you're you know sitting a blind or watching water or even calling to them. Um, you know, at the end of a morning hunt, when they stop bugling, I want to leave that area and, and have those elk have zero idea of what just happened. So I, I don't want to talk loudly as I'm walking away. I just want to leave leave it as less impacted as I can. And that way you've got the chance to work with them again when you're back on them. And that, and that predator-prey relationship that you talk about, I mean, I just recently had this exact same conversation. I mean, it you know, predator prey relationships, especially with ungulates, you know, like you know, deer and elk. I mean, it, it never takes a day off ever. I mean, especially here in the West where we have, you know, um, we have a significant higher population of, of mountain lions. I mean, our, our coyotes are out of control. I mean, there's not the predator management that there was back in the the sixties and before that, but it never takes a day off, man. And these animals, it is, it's a 20, it, it's 365 days a year, 24 seven. Um, and these, these animals are, I mean, it's, it's, it's how they, it's their innate sense of survival. Right. And, you know, we, we had an interesting conversation with, with Randy Omer about this. And we talked, one of the questions I asked him was how, you know, what is, how close do you get before you're, you're close enough? And he, he immediately answered, I've never seen someone answer a question so fast. He said, remember that lock 60 yards. Mm-hmm. And he just, he, he says, I believe that um, he says, I, I believe that you can get away with. what do he say? 20 or 30 or 40 was, times more. Was, I think it was 40. It was 40 yards. times, 40 times more. Yeah, I think 40 times more. more. I think you're right. 40 times more that he could get away with at 60 yards that he can't get away with at 30 yards. And he attributed that to that predator prey relationship. Like, yeah. you know, if a, if an animal hesitates, they're dead. They're it's, they're done, yeah. you know? Um, yep. And so, so we, we, as hunters, we have to, to deal with that. We have to mitigate that um, and, and, and f- find r- ways around that because you're right, especially these older age class of animals. I mean, they've, you got to think about it, man. They've survived six or seven or eight, or in some cases with a herd bull. I mean, these bulls are 10 plus years old. I mean, they, they've, they've survived a full decade of hunting and, you know, let's be honest as hunters, we're a lot more sophisticated. We have better optics. We have better bows. We have better rifles. I mean, it's, it's nothing short of amazing that, that some of these mature animals can live as long as they do with, you know, being preyed upon 24 seven. And then they have the, you know, then they have to run the gauntlet of, you know, multiple hunting seasons and, and for them to survive. I mean, let, let's give credit where credit is due. I mean, these, these mature animals, man, they, they have run the gauntlet and yeah. they have survived. And as such, they become incredibly hard, incredibly hard to, to, to kill. Yeah. And, and I think that can be said of every animal, yeah. elk, uh, mule deer, and, and certainly whitetail. I think it's, it's really an interesting thought process or kind of thought exercise 
and and I I just kind of came up with this based off something you said a while ago, Steve, and you mentioned imagine having to sneak up to every drink of water that you took. But you just kind of sit back and, and in a deep way think about how would you react if you knew, if it was ingrained in your psyche that every time you walked in your kitchen, there was a legitimate chance there was somebody hiding in there that was going to shoot you. That was a That was a real thing. That's not... Like, oh, somebody broke into my house, and now I'm nervous that they may be there the next time I come home. No, it's a legitimate concern of on your everyday life that every time you go into your kitchen to eat or drink something, there may be somebody hiding in there with a weapon trying to kill you. How would that change your day-to-day life? Well, and, and to that point, what, what, what Steve talked about, that I love that, that conversation about how – how cautious elk are and, and deer as they approach a water hole, especially in the West. I mean, you guys don't have this issue in so much in Louisiana because there's flipping water every five feet you walk, but um, yeah. same, same thing in Alaska, but like in the West, especially in Arizona, these, these, these trick tanks, these, you know, these guzzlers, I mean, it, you know, that could be the only source of water for miles and miles. And when you get out here on the Arizona strip, it, it can be 20 miles before there's another water source. And these predators have learned, especially these lions have, have learned to actually prey on animals. That's why a lot of hunters find carcasses in and around the water areas, because these predators have learned that, Hey man, all I have to do is get the wind in my favor and, and wait. And, and, you know, an elk or a deer is going to wander in and, my my chances are pretty good that you know that they're going to be able to to take and take yep. an animal. Well, I think it, it it to add on to what you said a while ago, Mike. That's interesting. Is not only have these mature animals figured out how to make it through hunting season, I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that it's not just hunting season. You know, there is no season for predators. They have to eat every month of the of the year. They have to eat every week of the year to survive. So. These animals are not just making it through hunting season. They're making it through the entire calendar year for eight, nine, ten years, evading that ever-present threat, you know. And uh, it is really impressive. It's very impressive of what they're capable of doing. And oftentimes these animals also go just nocturnal. Mm-hmm. I, I've just learned these yes. older age-class animals. I just, I just hunted a, a specific buck in Saskatchewan, Canada. He actually finally got killed. This was the first week of November and a hunter finally killed him actually Thanksgiving day, killed him on Thanksgiving day. So, you know, I mean, it it gets incredibly hard, especially with mule deer. They literally just, these big bucks become um, completely nocturnal. And frankly, I think their desire to breed actually fades with age and, you know, they're content to breed a, a doe or, you know, here and there, but they, it just becomes incredibly hard to, to kill an animal like yeah. that. Yep. I'm yep. surprised that predators don't do that more than they actually do, and that is killing uh, elk and deer at water sources. I'm just amazed that they – I mean, it looks to me like they could just do it any time they ch- chose to. Like you say, Mike, just get the wind right and sit there and ambush. Yep. Um, another thing that I've noticed um, calling elk in is when a bull's coming to a call – Yes, he may be bugling and yes, he may be aggressive, but the first time he notices something a little out of place or someone moves, 
they immediately assume the worst about that. They don't assume that, oh, maybe that's that cow that, you know, that, that call that I'm coming to, you know, that cow calling, maybe that was the cow that moved. No, they assume the worst about it. So I always tell people if they hear an unnatural noise, if they see a movement, it's going to change their demeanor completely. I mean, I've, no, I've noticed that bulls will stop bugling immediately and then they're just looking and, and, and again, they don't have that watch. They're going to find out whether it's good or bad before they come on in. So um, that, that's another scenario where, you know, I try to do everything I can um, not to let that elk see any movement, uh, see any, you know, flashes of light, hear any unnatural noise, anything like that, because it's going to it's going to yeah. mess up an otherwise great call in if they pick up on something just a little different. I, I heard someone one time. I think I heard it may have read it but I, I think I heard it somewhere. But it was someone uh, kind of comparing and, and using the uh, – there's a, there's a psychological – in humans, there's a psychological um, thing about fight or flight, you know, and it, it kind of defines how we handle fear. You know, fear is not always being afraid of the boogeyman. Fear is sometimes the fear of snakes. You know, that's your natural way of not getting bit by a snake. Right, you know those kind of things, but we have what's identified in 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 that science, so to speak, as a fight or flight. You know, and you make that decision based on your environment and your situation. Well, this 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 thing I heard it. You know, they compared it to deer, uh, and elk would be uh, the same way. Is it's always flight. It's always flight. Mm-hmm. In that in the predator prey relationship side of things, they don't have. I mean, in many ways, they don't have the cognitive thought processes that we do. But in this case, we make a, a cognitive decision in our day-to-day lives to fight or flight on a minor or major level with all sorts of things as we handle human emotion. These animals, they have one decision. It's flight every time, you know. And, and when, you, when you look at it in that perspective, you know, it, it really brings into focus exactly what's going on in the mentality of that animal as you're encountering him, you know, so. Uh, oh, definitely. Yeah. That's why it's fulfill. It's so fulfilling when you have an encounter and get one to come in and they're, they're totally duped and coming into the call and, and you get them up at point blank range and, uh, and you know, you've you beat yeah. them at that chess match, so to speak. It's just really a, a overwhelming feeling, feeling right. of satisfaction um, I just that's that's what keeps me hooked on elk calling that 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 part right there. Yeah, I think that that um, and the same. Yeah, I think the same can be said for any animals that you're able to call in because you're you're manipulating the situation and there's an inherent feeling of accomplishment in in seeming real and and keeping that charade up long enough to be successful. Any animal that you hunt where you use calling tactics, I think that feeling of uh, that feeling of uh, accomplishment and and whatnot, I think, is also one of the things that drives people who focus on archery hunting. Because when you succeed in archery, you have to succeed at a little bit greater level in that you have to get a lot closer. And you have to fool that animal on another level to kill him at 50 yards and in or 60 yards and in as opposed to um, a longer distance shot. And so I, I know for me personally, I've, I've pretty much gotten to where that's that's all that I do. Um, I'm not opposed to firearm hunting. I just, I have so many archery opportunities that that's all I find myself choosing these days. But I know for me, that's a big thing is 
the the sense of accomplishment and just you know just almost euphoric feeling that you get in playing that game intensely for so long and being successful in it and having to get so personal with that animal even when you don't take the shot just knowing that that animal walked off and you could have shot that animal and you mm-hmm. succeeded in all the things all the the work and all the decision making that you did you did it right and you got up close and personal with an animal that has one reaction to your presence and you were able to fool that whole thing. That is such an awesome feeling. And I, I think that's what hooks so many people on archery hunting is because it's just a different level of, of excitement when it all comes together that way. Oh, and, yeah. in con- and in contrast to that, you know, Steve, I think, I think if, if, if there's anybody in the elk woods that could say they've got it figured out, it would probably be you, but it, it isn't that interesting is, just when we think, you know, something like that happens, like Locke explains, and it all comes together, and, and you, you, you're you able to call in an incredible bull and, and, and harvest it, and you're like thinking, man, I, I have finally got this figured out. And just as you, you think you, you've got it all figured out, they do something totally different. And, you know, the, the, the thing that's interesting about elk is, and I, and I know it's so cliche but but like you know, elk are where they are. And it's, it's interesting about like mule deer. We had this discussion recently with some, some friends in a hunting cab, like, like mule deer and white till I've learned kind of have a core area, but elk are so incredibly different. I mean, we've had bulls on some of our limited entry units that, I mean, these limited entry units, I mean, they'll span 50 miles and it, it has been documented where, you know, a, a pretty significantly large herd bull that was, you know, found on one, you know, on the north end of the unit was found the very next day on the south end of the unit, 50 miles away. These elk, I mean, they'll just pick up for no apparent reason and, and just move. And I remember one year I was up in the high country of Colorado. I was up actually hunting high elevation. I was, I think I was around just below 13,000 feet and I glassed way across this basin and there was a big, big open scree slide and a few, you know, a few pockets of timber. And I, I glassed up this bull and he was pushing five head of cows. And it was such open country that I watched him move literally in, in the span of probably, I mean, it wasn't very long. I mean, may, maybe it ended up being 20 minutes or so. I watched this bull cover what probably constituted well over a mile, for sure a mile. He he just traversed this this whole mountainside. Just it was like he was on a mission. It's just it's just so fascinating and interesting to me because because elk, you know, unlike deer, man, they just they pick up and move. And you mm-hmm. you might be in an area where it's just covered up in elk, and the very next day it's completely void of elk. And so I think that that's what makes it even more fascinating and 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 interesting. But I don't know. I think that's with really any animals when you think you got them. Just when you think you got them figured out, you don't. Yep. <laughs> and there's so much to you're learn. You're so right, Mike. On so many levels there. I mean, you're spot on that elk are so rangy. And I think that's their biggest defense against us is that they, like you say, they cover so much ground. Same way in Arizona. There's been bulls that have been documented to move over 20 miles during the rut. Um, in fact, one bull uh, that we had in Unit 9 
moved into a completely different unit, seven west to the south, over 20 miles, and was was killed there, a, a very identifiable bull. So, yeah, just that ranginess just makes them very difficult. And uh, like you say, it makes it really satisfying when you play the game and, and, and beat them at that. Um, but I, I think that's what makes elk so cool is that they're they're just so physical and just such a you know physical rangy animal they're they're just so difficult to kill um i always say i like to hunt them you know where they're bugling and i'm not this guy that's just going to focus on one bull because like you say they can they can change zip codes on you and um, they may be completely out of your unit potentially so i'm more of the guy that wants to have action and and hunting hunt them where they're bugling yeah yeah, and it's and and they don't elk don't give a give a damn about how rugged the country is. I mean, it's just yeah. just fascinates me. Just some of the the country they live in. They don't they don't care if there's you know three or four feet of snow. They'll be right in the middle of it. I mean, they're just mm-hmm. they're just tough, hardy animals, man. I mean, they just they're just amazing. Of course, you know you gotta when you talk about shot placement, you gotta hit elk good because they're just so freaking tough you know and um but i think that just adds to the magnificence of the animal i think it's it's just one of the many things that draws to to the elk woods and and uh you know and i think you've done a a magnificent job with with elk camp um tv you've kind of really brought that to life you've been very successful of of bringing that whole experience right because hunting hunting is a whole experience it's it's I mean, it's, it's not just about the, you know, it's just not about the kill. We, we often discuss that, man, but it's about the whole experience. And I think the fact that the elk are vocal, I think that just, just adds to the, the flavor and the, the, the magnificence of the whole hunt. Yeah. I always say, if you're out there not putting pressure on yourself, you know, hunting hard, but having fun at the same time and not getting yourself pressured up about a particular score or anything like that, but you're just enjoying the company of the people you're around and yeah, you're hunting hard and doing things right, but you're just, um, you know, hunting out, hunting out there and having a good time without pressure on yourself. That's when good things happen. And, um, you know, like you said earlier, um, I always like to say that for me, elk hunting and elk calling especially is a is a journey and I never feel like I've arrived. I always feel like I want to come out of the woods every single year and maybe even every encounter with learning something and never feeling like I've arrived because I feel like anytime I get that attitude that the next bull that I have a encounter with is going to school me for sure. So, I always like to, you know, approach things with an open mindset and try to try to learn from each encounter that I have, because like I said earlier, every bull has its temperament. And and so you have to deal with each one just a little bit differently. I mean, there's a lot of commonalities, but you got to keep that open mindset and uh, just uh, just enjoy the journey out there. I I think everyone I I can say as as a first year elk hunter that it, it what I did was very difficult. It was very backcountry. It was uh, it was it was hard, and I know there are easier ways to experience it. But as an outdoorsman, since I was old enough for my dad to drag me out in the woods with him, um, it's definitely something everyone should try to experience. It's uh, they are you know everything that you guys have said about elk on some level. Though I didn't ever get get a shot at one. Um, I came close a couple of times, and I got to experience pretty much most of the things that we're talking about. 
in the way that they act and, and what you can expect to experience um, hunting elk. And it is definitely something that passionate outdoorsmen um, from any part of the country, an elk hunt is something everyone should try to experience. It's, uh, it's been, uh, it is really eye opening to me. So, um, I wanted to, you know, as we kind of wrap up the podcast, I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to, to tell us a little bit about what's going on with Elk Camp TV and how people can, uh, can view that and follow along with what you're doing. Yeah, thanks, Locke. So like we said earlier, it's um, in season five. That will end here at the end of December. Um, It is going to air the first and second quarter. It's going to continue to air in Canada up there on Sportsman Channel. Um, And season six will start airing here in the States again uh, in late June and air again through December. So for quarters three and four, um, people can catch it on the Sportsman Channel um, they can also catch it digitally on My Outdoor TV. They can go on to MOTV.com and watch it digitally there. I've also got some uh, past episodes that are on YouTube. Um, I have a contract with Sportsman Channel, so they have exclusivity to, for, to my episodes for a period of time. So I can't just dump everything on YouTube, but there is some Elk Camp on, uh, on YouTube. So you can just type in Elk Camp TV or Elk Camp Steve Chapel and find it there. Um, Oh gosh, where else? Um, you have an application service. Tell us about that. Steve. Oh yeah, Mike. Thank you for for asking about that. Yeah. So for Arizona, I have a service that's called Zero Hunt Fees, and what that is, it's a program that I help people with getting applied in the draw, helping them select hunts based on their preferences and their expectations. Um, basically, someone to be a member of Zero Hunt Fees, they pay three hundred forty nine dollars a year. The great thing about it is not only the application and hunt choice help in getting through the difficulty of getting applied in the draw, but if they draw a tag, that $349 membership pays for their guided hunt. So they don't have to pay six, seven, eight thousand dollars for the guided hunt. That membership in zero hunt fees covers the cost of their hunt. So if anyone out there is interested in learning more about that, they can check out zerohuntfees.com. We have members draw every single year. Matter of fact, um, the archery hunter that I hunted with first this year, he was a first year member in zero hunt fees. He drew the very first year and hunted with me in unit 23 North. And we videoed an episode for elk camp that will be airing in season six. And he got a great bull. That's awesome. That is very awesome. Definitely yeah, that's a tremendous service. Yeah, definitely encourage people to check that out. And um, that that sounds like a great membership benefit. I I glad Mike asked because I honestly I I wasn't aware of that going into this. So that poor, yeah, thank, poor research on my part. For for non resident hunters, especially, I mean, I think this is a great you know this is a great service, um, especially if you're coming to the West for the first time. And, you know, I, I know there's a lot of listeners out there that, you know, their first elk hunt is on their hit list and it's something they've, they've dreamed about for years. And I think this is a, a great service, especially to, to, to those that are they're not familiar with or hunted Arizona before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have nothing to worry about. We handle everything from helping them get through the difficulty of the draw, because I know for a beginner, that can be very intimidating just to learn the ropes of getting through that process. And Arizona is not the most simple, but then not having to worry about scouting or spending money on a trip to come out to Arizona to figure a unit out. Uh, Maybe they're not a super experienced elk hunter, you know, being a zero hunt fees member just 
covers all of that. So it's a, it's all encompassing. And um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. The first thing a member will always say when they draw a tag and we talk on the phone is they can't believe it's for real. They, they don't believe that they drew the tag. And then secondly, the most common question they ask me is, okay, so how much do I owe for the guide? Yeah. And I say, well, nothing. That's, that's why you were a member, right? Because that covers the cost of the guide. So yeah, yeah it's a, it's a fantastic program. That's, that's incredible. And um, I've never heard of a service like that. So that is, that's really cool. Well, uh, Steve, we really appreciate you taking the time um, being you know, a part of the Scree team and, and supporting the brand as well. And I encourage people to check you out at Elk Camp TV and, and, and your service there with Zero Hunt Fees. And I want to remind everybody that uh, we definitely want to hear from you regarding the podcast. You can email me at lock, that's L-O-C-K-E, at screegear.com. And let me know what you think about the podcast, any topics of conversation or even specific guests that you'd like to see if we can get on here and record with uh, enjoy doing it enjoying here this 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 first season of of the podcast and and um, appreciate the feedback we've gotten so far um want to wish everybody a happy holidays and thank you all so much for listening you've been listening to the street country podcast